So due to technical difficulties beyond our control, we had uh, some issues on Sunday morning that precluded us from having a live stream or even a recording. So um, apologize for that, for those who tried to tune in, because uh, this Sunday we went ahead and talked about uh, the history of the Calvary Chapel movement, of which we are a part. Uh, some months ago, we did our yearly uh, church meeting where we talked about our church's history, Calvary Chapel Franklin, and uh, we talked more specifically about our own fellowship and where we come from, where we're going, those kinds of things. Um, Sunday, this Sunday, this last Sunday, uh, we went ahead and broadened it a little bit and talked about the Calvary Chapel movement uh, on a little larger picture. And so uh, I thought that would be helpful. And uh, as it turns out, a great uh, many of our, a great many sounds huge, but uh, a good portion of, our, of the folks in our, ch- our church uh, didn't have a Calvary Chapel background. And uh, I was actually glad to see that because um, and I, I think we mentioned this back when we talked about Calvary Chapel Franklin specifically. But when Julie and I set out to plant the church, one of our prayers was that the church would not just be a transplant for people that have been part of Calvary Chapels in the past. Of course, that's always welcome. It's nice to have people that understand where you're at and all that kind of thing. But it wasn't really our desire to plant a church that just drew uh, folks from other Calvary Chapels when they moved to Tennessee or something like that. Uh, instead, we wanted to be just a good, solid Bible-teaching uh, church locally that anybody, whether they knew about Calvary Chapel previously or not, would be able to come to uh, immediately just feel a part of and be able to grow in the Lord and grow in fellowship with other believers. And so it's always good to see whenever we do ask for a show of hands on that kind of thing, which isn't very often, but in a situation like this where we do, uh, it's always nice to see that a pretty good number of folks really didn't come out of uh, another Calvary and, you know, maybe moved here to Franklin and, and, uh, and, and started joining with us. And so, uh, I always like to see that. Um, and, and actually another good reason why we, um, took some time on Sunday, as it turned out, it turned out to be a good idea because there were a number of folks who even had backgrounds with Calvary Chapel who weren't necessarily all that aware of much of the history. And so I thought it might be a good idea to go ahead and, and spend some time on that. So again, I apologize that the actual stream didn't work on Sunday. Uh, it was a really wonderful service together. We had some great interactions, questions and answers. We laughed. We cried. It was just a, a wonderful thing. We had fireworks and flash pots and stuff. I can't really recreate all that here in the office. And so uh, I apologize for that. But I'll do my best to go ahead and just share the content that we did talk about. And and so I guess I'll start by inviting you to open to Acts chapter 2. This actually was our public reading we, we read from uh, on Sunday morning to start off our time in the Word. And um, starting in verse 42, where uh, Luke records in the book of Acts, again, chapter 2, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's that simple model of ministry from Acts chapter 2, that that um, first century um, pattern that is laid out for us here in Acts chapter 2, which, you know, short of maybe First, Second Timothy, Titus, where Paul very specifically talks about uh, and writes, I should say, to describe how the church is to 
function, how they're to conduct themselves in the church, which is the ground and pillar of truth. Um, those would be much more expansive in terms of the practice of the church. But if you want to know in the most succinct terms possible what the church is all about and should be all about in terms of practice, this really lays it out. I believe this is the model for the church. And I do suspect, as, as I've um, as I have for some time, that at some point the churches will likely go back to more of a house setting. I think that smaller groups are going to become more the norm. I think certainly during the time of the tribulation period, that 70th week of Daniel will likely be characterized among uh, this way among believers as they get saved during that time. Uh, any who come to faith during that period of time will likely not be able to gather in large gatherings. They likely will be very much like the first century uh, when the Antichrist is on the scene, who himself is much like a Caesar similar again to the first century. But for now, um, I still think, even though we may still be able to meet in larger gatherings, um, I think this model still is our basis. And so uh, I, I, I start with that chapter whenever I talk about either our church personally, or in this case, when I talk about uh, the Calvary Chapel movement and uh, on, on the broader picture, because it is that sort of simple approach that has marked, by and large, um, the movement. This has been, uh, as it is, uh, we're not the only churches that adopt this, obviously, but but for our for our own purposes here today, this certainly does uh, lay the foundation for what really has been, by and large, a somewhat simple, straightforward approach to ministry focused on a number of uh, characteristics or distinctives that I'll go ahead and explain shortly. Um, but to sort of get to that, I'd like to lay out a little bit of history about Calvary chapels, plural, the, the movement of churches and their beginnings, which really go back to 1965. Uh, there was a, uh, a man named Chuck Smith who passed away in 2013, but he and his wife Kay had been part of a denomination known as the Four Square Denomination. Uh, they were, it's a Pentecostal church and that's where the history they came out of. And so, uh, during that time, they were, serving in churches. And as Chuck tells the story, I don't remember if I actually said this on Sunday, and I'll try not, I'll try to make it a habit of not referring back to the service that didn't get recorded. Um, but I, I don't think I actually mentioned this, but Chuck would tell um, sort of a little bit of the, uh, he'd give some background on that. And he would talk about how in that setting and in that denomination, uh, evangelism was a really, really major focus. Now, of course, in, in the body of Christ, evangelism should be a focus, but what he was referring to is the idea that week after week after week on Sunday mornings, all of the sermons were basically evangelistic sermons with calls to be saved, and, and that was about as deep as it went. And they'd have people get saved and all that kind of thing, but they would get saved and never really grow in their faith because the next week it was just another evangelistic sermon. And so this marked his ministry, and they would teach, you know, um, basically in that mode. And um, and I'm going to kind of sort of truncate a lot of this. If you want to really watch a longer version of the history, there is a video that you can find on YouTube called Adventure of Faith. Uh, in my opinion, that is the best um, uh, documentary on the Calvary Chapel movement. There have been others that have been made, and they're all good in their own way. But this is, in my view, the most comprehensive uh, that has been done. And so I would recommend it. And you can find it for free on YouTube. You can watch it. It's about two and a half hours long. But anyway, as as Chuck... Um, uh, began to um, sort of, or continued to teach in that way, um, in his denomination, it was common for them to move from place to place to place. And so uh, Chuck had 
about two years worth of sermons that he would preach, again, pretty much all from an evangelistic standpoint. And then as he got to about the end of his two years worth of sermons, he'd put in for a transfer and they'd move him to another church or maybe their denomination just moved people every two years, however that worked. But he would really just spend a couple of years, he and Kay, and then they'd move on to some other assignment. Well, they ended up in uh, in Southern California there in Newport, uh, I believe it was the Newport Beach area there, and they really liked being there. And so um, as they were coming up on the two years, um, they really kind of didn't want to leave, but he didn't have any more sermons to really share. And so as he was studying, he uh, was using a commentary that might be uh, one that many of you have. It's called Haley's Bible Commentary. Uh, it's been around for a long, long time. I've actually got a couple of copies of it, a, a pretty old one on my shelf over, uh, thought I had it sitting right here. It's over here somewhere, but anyway, so it's a, it's a popular commentary and it's a survey through the Bible and then some other Bible related information and that kind of thing. Well, as he was reading through it, he came across one comment made by Haley that said, if you want to know the most important page in this book, the most important thing I'm teaching you in this book, it's on such and such a page. And so he checked, went and looked. He thought, well, gosh, if it's that important, I should go look at it. And on that page, uh, Haley mentioned that the best thing you can do for your church is to take them verse by verse in a systematic way through the scriptures. And that really hadn't dawned on Chuck before. And, uh, and it wasn't common to necessarily teach verse by verse through the Bible, at least in his experience. And so he uh, thought, okay, well, let's go ahead and do that. And so they picked First John as a, as a study to do that with. And so they began to take their church through the book of First John in a verse-by-verse fashion from First John 1, 1 all the way through the book. And as they did, the church began to grow. And, um, you know, they, he would teach them key words to look for and to memorize passages. And it just was a very healthy approach that began to bear some fruit almost immediately. And so, um, as, as that began to happen, they just decided, well, let's pick another book. And so as they finished first John, they went on to another book and then another and then another, and the church had experienced some phenomenal growth. And so, uh, at one point the denomination, um, New headquarters got wind of this and asked about it. Well, what's the secret? What are you doing that's getting so much growth? Or why are so many people getting saved and your church growing? And his answer was just simply, we're just teaching through the word. And and that wasn't necessarily the way the denomination did things. And and at some point, over a number of different circumstances, Chuck ended up and Kay ended up leaving the Foursquare Church. And eventually they found themselves being invited to go and pastor a small church called Calvary Chapel that had about 25 members to it. Uh, and it was a bit of a stretch of faith because they couldn't afford to pay them very much. They were a very small congregation. And so Chuck worked jobs and all this kind of thing. And they, they went there and started to care and love and feed that flock. Well, in taking that same approach to verse by verse teaching, the church began to grow and, and, uh, and eventually the growth became so much that they ended up having to start meeting under a very large tent. And that led to building a structure, uh, that is still there today on the corner of MacArthur Boulevard. And so, um, it's, uh, um, it's, it's really a wonderful, uh, just story of the Holy Spirit's moving through the teaching of God's word that brought explosive growth and the rest of that history, uh, would take a long time to talk about. Again, I'll recommend that video again, Adventure in Faith, but I, I just wanted to give a little bit of history just so you get a sense of where we're from. Now, during that period of time, again, if you're familiar with the period of time in the 1960s and early seventies, uh, I was born in 1968. So 
everything I just described to you uh, mostly happened before I was born, uh, certainly way before I was a believer. But the period of time we're talking about is a period of time uh, that is generally referred to as the time of the Jesus movement. And there were a number of churches that had began to welcome in all these young people that were, uh, you know, borrowed the Timothy Lear expression, tuned in and tuned out, uh, uh, tuned in, tu- turned on, whatever it was kind of thing. But the idea of just being, you know, utilizing drugs and acid and all this kind of stuff and just experimenting with stuff to to get experienced and all that. This was the culture of that time among the young people. And a lot of your more denominational, uh, traditional denominational churches weren't necessarily particularly open to some of the, the these, these young people in the condition they were in coming and being part of their fellowships. And as I mentioned uh, Sunday, it's it's not that I'm trying to cast aspersions on those churches, because truth be told, if somebody radically different than uh, looked, someone who came into our church that looked radically different than we do, um, we might raise an eyebrow and, and be a little put off at first and that kind of thing. So it's it's not an uncommon response. But there were some churches, among which Calvary Chapel was one of the primary ones, where they began to welcome those uh, the young people in. As a matter of fact, I, I want to make sure uh, that, I, that I do give Kay, uh, Chuck's wife, a lot of credit here, because Chuck himself would point out that it was actually Kay who had the vision, or the burden, I should say, for those young people. Uh, she just saw them, and her heart was broken over their lostness and their directionlessness and all of this, and she just really began to develop a burden for them. And uh, so a couple of Chuck and Kay's kids um, knew some of these young people. One of the, I think one of their kids started to bring some over. And, and they used to just sit together and talk and just get to know each other. And, and Chuck and Kay began to just really develop a desire to reach them. And so as some of them started to come over to the house and started to come over to the church, um, they started getting saved. And not only saved from hearing the word and, and, and being invited to receive Christ, but they also began to grow in their knowledge of the faith, as, as Chuck would be teaching verse by verse through the Bible. And so these young people would come in, and they didn't have to put on a suit to come in. They didn't have to bathe to come in. They just came as they were, and they were received and accepted in this. And so um, as as their numbers began to grow, they began to have to, again, uh, meet in the tent, and then eventually the larger church and all this kind of thing. And there's an attitude that really... Um, uh, uh, came forth in that time. It really came to the fore during that time. And and I, I think it's best told in this particular story um, where uh, they had just gotten new carpeting in the church there in Costa Mesa where the church uh, is set. And uh, and a lot of the young people were coming in and I, I heard stories about how they used to stick their toes in the little communion cup holders on the backs of the pews and all that kind of thing. But they would come in without shoes on and they were dirty and all this kind of thing. And Somebody came in and, and just complained to Chuck that the young people were getting the new carpet all dirty and they need to tell the young people to start putting on shoes and wash up and everything before they come. And Chuck stopped it right there uh, and, and said, well, then pull up the carpet because we're not going to resist people coming into the church for the sake of carpeting and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and so that, that just kind of gave the sense of, of really what the church and what the pastor of that church, uh, Chuck Smith, was really all about. Uh, now, by the way, uh, I, I'm i not uh, naive. I don't have sort of a romantic view of the early years and Chuck and all this kind of thing. I mean, I guess I do a little bit, but not without a sense of reality. Nobody is perfect and no ministry is perfect. Um, our ministry is not perfect because I'm pastoring it. How could it be perfect? And so there's, there's, there is no perfect ministry. But that's part of the beauty of what God does, 
right? I mean, he uses imperfect people, people with their own flaws and their own um, attitudes about things and all that. Remember, it was actually Kay who was the one who uh, really had the had the heart for the the young people who were just you know drugged out and lost and all that kind of thing. But Chuck began to adopt that, and so it's not really a matter of God finding perfect people who are able to do these things, but rather just people who are available. Uh, and and God uh, began to use them, and this church began to uh, just grow uh, enormously numerically. And and in by the time Chuck passed away in 2013, about 35,000 people a week considered Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa to be their home church. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of these young people who went on to um, uh, grow in their faith and, and evangelize and see people get saved eventually started churches of their own. And uh, and some of those churches had have grown to be some of the largest in the country. Now, I want to make sure I say something at this point. I am not impressed with numbers. Numbers is not a big thing for me, as I mentioned to our fellowship on a number of occasions. Numbers, to me, is the fourth book of the Bible. It's not necessarily your barometer for success. And so when I say that, it's not that I'm saying, oh, look at the big churches, but rather look at what God did through a group of people. Uh, Chuck is the only one that really had a background with a, a biblical teaching background and had some edu- schooling in that and that kind of thing. But most most of the people that, that ultimately went on to pastor churches out of Calvary Chapel really didn't have that. Uh, they just loved the word. They sat under good teaching. They grew. They began to develop their own teaching skills and styles as they would go verse by verse teaching the Bible. And one of the beautiful benefits of teaching verse by verse is that you're forced to have to learn what these difficult passages mean. You're you're forced to have to take the passages for what they say, because eventually you're going to get through the whole thing and you're going to have to, you, you're not able to avoid the difficult things. You have to sit down and figure them out. That's just one of the many benefits. And that ended up happening with so many of them. And so um, that again, that gives us a little bit of the history of, of Calvary Chapel. I will mention um, out of Calvary Chapels early on um, uh, in the Jesus movement, there was a, a huge explosion of new music, uh, that came out, much of the rock and roll of that era was now brought into the church and songs of love to Christ and, and, and songs of worship and praise were written in those styles and it really just took off and, and, and found root. And we, you know, much of the contemporary, uh, I, I don't know whether I should be excited about this or sort of a little embarrassed about it, but some of the, uh, contemporary Christian worship today, uh, really finds its roots in that time. Although, there was a beautiful purity of so much of what came out of that time as opposed to some of the stuff that we see today, which is much more man-centered than Christ-centered uh, and much more emotionally driven than theologically driven. But when you go through like the um, Maranatha praise series, for example, some of my very favorite remaining to this day, you know, 40, 30 years later, um, um, well, more than 40 years later in terms of its creation, but in terms of my experience with it, having to come to Christ around 1991, uh, this remains some of my favorite music. And so Maranatha music came out of this. And so many of those songs were literally just scripture put to music, uh, in a contemporary style. It was just wonderful. And, um, and, uh, but that, that was one of the things that grew out of the Calvary Chapel movement. Um, some of you may be familiar with the vineyard churches and early on in, in, uh, Calvary's history, a number of pastors kind of decided they wanted to take on a more experiential approach to, to Christianity. And so they began to pursue that. And Chuck asked him, if you're going to do that, just, you know, okay, God be with you, but change your name because that's not really what we're about. And and I'll talk more about what we are about uh, very shortly here as we make our way through. But I did want to talk about one other thing before we move into that. And that is uh, in 2013, when Chuck passed away, 
One thing Chuck did not really spend much time on was the idea of of building a succession plan for when he passed. Uh, So much of the movement really had its roots in the person, uh, Chuck Smith, and his philosophy of ministry and the example that he set. And a lot of guys went out and planted churches based on that philosophy of ministry, wanting to uh, really embrace uh, that style of of just open armed welcoming people in to hear the word of God and letting the Holy Spirit change them as they uh, as they came and and heard the word of God and it was just very simple but when it came toward the end of Chuck's life he had at one point asked his uh, son in law Brian Broderson to consider taking on the leadership role which for at the time he had declined um, and then before he passed away Chuck. Uh, had asked a group of guys who had been in the movement for a very long time to consider coming together as a board to sort of oversee the movement of Calvary Chapel, and they did, and that became what was known as the Calvary Chapel Association. Um, However, uh, a couple of years later, um, there was a split uh, over the leadership of the movement. Uh, Brian Broderson led a group of churches into a new uh, group known as the Calvary Global Network, and uh, the uh, Calvary Chapel Association continues to operate under that name, and there there is a bit of a of a, of a division within the Calvary Chapel movement uh, that is represented in these two groups. We personally belong to the Calvary Chapel Association, uh, which I believe best lines up with Chuck's vision. Brian has gone off in a different direction that um, that is his direction, and that kind of thing. Again, my goal is not to really, uh, you know, um, cast aspersions or anything like that, but. Uh, but just so you're aware, there is uh, there are these two branches of the Calvary Chapel movement now, and they uh, they are organized differently, and they're generally uh, their philosophies differ in some areas, some key areas. But both sides of the movement do still hold the Word of God in high regard, and and that kind of thing. And so there are some things that's that are similar, but there are some significant distinctions between them, and uh, and that's something you can research on your own. Or to be honest with you, I I I, I will put a link. Uh, below uh, with a link to a previous uh, message we gave back in 2017, um, shortly after that had happened, where we talked about this in much greater detail. So if you want to learn more about that, uh, you can click the link below. Um, uh, But let me go ahead now and move into a little different section of the message where I'd like to spend the rest of our time, and that is describing uh, the philosophy and distinctives of Calvary Chapel. So let me wet my whistle and go for it here. So we're going to go ahead and move now again into some of the distinctives that make a Calvary Chapel a Calvary Chapel. Um, now, most churches on some level agree with a lot of these things and we would be in agreement with, but there are some things that are a little bit more particular to our style of ministry in terms of the whole, uh, the amalgamation of these things together in in, uh, in our approach to ministry. So let me go ahead and just break them down. Uh, I will do that relatively rapidly. And then uh, I'll also mention a couple of questions that were raised at the end of the service, and I'll uh, mention those, and I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, and share what we shared about them on Sunday. So um, again, the distinctives are uh, are in relation to what makes us what we are. When you go to a Calvary Chapel, what does it look like? What do they think about things? What is their philosophy of ministry? Well, here are a, a number of, of key points within that. Uh, I guess I should say at the outside here that there is a book that was put together by Chuck uh, some years ago called Calvary Chapel Distinctives. And that booklet, uh, which we have at our church, if you're part of our fellowship and you're watching this and you want to pick one up, we've got a number of them on the book table. You can just take one for free. 
Um, if you don't have one, you can order one online at, uh, you know, you can go on Amazon or Calvary Chapel somewhere and find it. But, um, but this book talks about these things and a few other things in, um, greater detail, but we're going to cover some of the main ones here uh, in our time. So let me start first uh, with the idea of the priority and centrality of the Word of God. Now, if you come to our fellowship, and generally when you go to any Calvary Chapel, this becomes obvious very quickly. Uh, Calvary Chapels focus heavily on the teaching of the Word of God. Now, again, we're not the only churches who do, but we do definitely uh, make a distinction between the idea of teaching from the Word of God and teaching the Word of God. Uh, teaching from the Word of God can take many different uh, forms. There can be uh, topical message after topical message or series after series after series uh, where certain themes become the, the focus of the teaching. That's teaching from the Word of God. Or a worse uh, example of this would be somebody who basically just tells lots of jokes and stories and springboards off a passage in Scripture, but doesn't really spend a lot of time in the passage itself. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think it was, uh, spoke about how he had gone on vacation and had, uh, um, or no, no, it was a G. Campbell Morgan, I think it was actually, who had said he had gone on vacation. And uh, at, while he was on vacation, he went to a church service where he heard a capital sermon uh, on a uh, capital message that had nothing to do with the text, something something to that effect, and 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 that's that's not what we do at Calvary Chapel. Uh, Calvary Chapel, we believe in a systematic approach to teaching the Word of God from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, verse by verse, line upon line. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a great example of this philosophy of approach to Word of the God in, in uh, to the Word of God in Nehemiah chapter eight, uh, verse eight, where it speaks of uh, during the time of Ezra where they would uh, teach, uh, they would open up and read the Word of God, and they would give the sense of it and help give understanding. And so they would read it, exposit it, give understanding so people understood what was being read. That's a beautiful, succinct way of putting uh, how a ministry that is based on the Word of God should be. We teach our people and help them understand what it means. We want them to know the Word of God. We don't want them just to hear a little bit um, and then hear just our stories and all that. Stories, a joke, humor, these things can help, you know, uh, can help deliver the Word. But the focus has to be on the teaching of the Word itself. The Word has to be the star. It has to be the, the central element of the exposition. It can't just be a springboard to other things. It is the thing. And so that's what we believe here at Calvary Chapel. And so, uh, matter of fact, I will invite you to turn to Second uh, Timothy chapter four, uh, and we'll read a passage here that emphasizes the importance of this idea. Uh, Paul is teaching Timothy, who is a young man who has been called to pastor the churches in Ephesus, uh, and what that means. Uh, so, this is a little bit outside of our experience here in the West, but is not uncommon to many other churches around the world that are in uh, maybe in. Um, uh, different situations than we might be here in the West. But uh, in the first century, churches met in houses. Again, in Acts 2.42, they met from house to house and all of this. They didn't meet in large numberings because that would draw attention, and, and Christianity was not a legal religion until the 300s. And so um, so they would be house churches. And so Timothy's role was to establish leaders in those churches, in those small gatherings, and then his job was to be an overseer of those works in that. So 
when Paul is teaching this to Timothy, he's writing this letter to Timothy, the idea is that Timothy would express these ideas to any number of these churches in Ephesus where he was called to be uh, uh, the one overseeing these churches. And so Paul's word to Timothy, and by extension word to the churches there in Ephesus, was this. And of course, not just Ephesus, but but churches in any context. Because First and Second Timothy are written so the churches would know how to conduct themselves Believers would know how to conduct themselves in the church, which is the ground and pillar of truth. Uh, And here's what Paul had to say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Why? Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Uh, But according to their own desires, and because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables or stories. Uh, But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. In other words, your ministry being fulfilled is centered on the idea of teaching the Word of God, sharing faith that people might come to believe, but ultimately that they then would grow through the teaching of the Word of God. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about how in the last days, the Holy Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, there will be those given over to doctrines of demons. And it gives a little bit of example of what that will look like, forbidding to marry and forbidding certain foods and those kinds of things. But throughout that passage, he goes on to speak about Timothy's job in teaching them the word of God, because in doing so, he will save or protect. Timothy was already saved. And so the word there in that context speaks of protecting himself and also those whom he teaches, those who are under his charge. So the teaching of the word of God is not just part of the service. It's the center of the service. Um, it is something that we take very, very seriously and ought to. This is one of those things that I think every single church in every context throughout all of human history should embrace fully. Uh, matter of fact, I'll invite you to look just a little bit to your left in Second Timothy chapter 3. Here is why the teaching of the Word of God is personally so important for us and is important to us each personally is maybe a better way to say that. All Scripture, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that word means God breathed. God has breathed out the Word of God. It has come from His very being to us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now notice that. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. This is why at Calvary Chapels, we believe in teaching the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, throughout our church's history, as a matter of fact, in, in um, over the course of the last 14, or uh, 13, 14, going on 14 years, our church, we have made our way through the entire New Testament, and we have taught many of the books of the Old Testament, and we'll continue to do that as we ultimately make sure our people are fed the whole Word of God. And so Paul, when he would teach from synagogue to synagogue, when he would um, try to convince people of the uh, of, of the person and work of Christ, he would be teaching from the Old Testament and also from Revelation as God gave it to him, that, that which we also now have inscripturated in all that Paul gave us in the New Testament. Just like the other writers of the New Testament were inspired of God, so Paul would be teaching uh, not only from what God gave him, but also teaching from the Old Testament scriptures. It often says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, the Old Testament at that time. 
And so we at Calvary Chapel believe in the importance of the priority of the teaching of the Word of God in our fellowships. Even in our home groups, when we teach something which is a new thing, we just started our home groups uh, last week, and even the study that we're doing, uh, our first launch into home groups is a thematic study on uh, on uh, godliness with contentment is great gain, but it is rich in scripture that people in the groups will read and they will discuss and they will consider. And so even that, uh, that's not necessarily a through the through a book of the Bible study per se, uh, it is a study that is rich in scripture so that the word of God is at the center of the discussion. Uh, we believe that the Word of God needs to be taught, and it is not, uh, it's not, again, a part of the service. It's not something that we just sort of give lip service to, but we teach it. So that's the first thing. Um, the second one um, is uh, uh, one that arguably could be the first one, too, um, and that is the primacy of Jesus Christ. Christ is at the center of our gatherings and of our lives. And we believe as Calvary chapels that we want to emphasize the importance of a Christ-centered theology. And now you might say, well, duh, of course. I mean, it's church. Why wouldn't we be talking about Jesus? Well, what I mean is this. Uh, There is a difference between a Christ-centered theology or a God-centered theology and a man-centered theology. A man-centered theology is all about what Jesus did for me, for my sake, and all of that. There is a place for that in our teaching. But the scripture is not about me. God's revelation to mankind is for mankind, but it's not just about mankind. The ultimate heart of the scripture is God himself. As a matter of fact, Jesus would say this in John chapter 5, When in talking to the Pharisees, he said, you study the scriptures because it is in them you think that you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of me. In other words, Jesus is the central feature of all of scripture. Uh, John would say it in John 1.1. He's quoted John 5 in John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, the logos, Christ himself being the very word of God. Uh, the idea of God expressed and such, you know. So um, so when we talk about a Christ-centered theology, that changes a lot of things uh, that we might typically bring to our understanding of, of the Scripture. For example, the Scripture does not paint us as good people who have just gone bad a little bit and need to be brought back on track. That is a man-centered theology. A God-centered theology, such as we read throughout the entire Scripture, but prominently in places like uh, Romans 8 through 11 in that were, well, I shouldn't say 8 through 11, really the whole of the book of Romans for the most part, so it becomes mostly practical at the end. But much of that book, and and really, again, I would argue the whole scripture, make the point that man is not inherently good. Man doesn't start from a good place. Man starts from a place of being born in iniquity, born in sin, and is hopelessly lost if not for Christ. Uh, and so, we believe in the priority of the primacy of putting Christ at the center of our theology. We believe that as we teach through the scriptures, we can learn uh, something about Christ or his work on every page. Literally, we believe that the whole of scripture ultimately points us to him. And again, that stands in, in, in opposition to a man-centered theology, which would simply read the scriptures to find out what's in it for me. And you can generally tell that in messages when when they 
predominantly are more about people than they are about God. And I would argue it's a much healthier thing to spend your time talking about God and His grace and His glory and all of these things. Because when we develop a a big picture of who God is, not just in how well He can come to my rescue, but just in, in terms of who He is, His magnitude, His magnificence, His glory, His greatness, His wisdom, His power, His creativity, all of these things, His truth, His justice, His righteousness, His judgment, all of these things uh, help us develop a better understanding of the very person of God. And the more we can feed our people with that, the, the more clear, accurate, and bigger picture of God they will have. Not one that is manufactured for the sake of helping me, but one that is simply expressed from Scripture that helps us know who He is. And this is something that we, we, we very much put at the, at the center of our understanding. Now, again, points one and two, I kind of debated which one to put first, but I just sort of used Psalm 138.2 as my uh, sort of justification for putting the Word of God first, where Psalm 138.2 speaks of where God even holds His Word even above His name. Now, being a little bit, um, you know, splitting hairs on which one I put first, and I, I just, anyway, just grant me that one. So, all right. So, uh, first, again, the, the uh, priority and centrality of the Word of God. Secondly, the, uh, the primacy of Jesus Christ. And the third point I'm going to spend a minute on, and this speaks to our reliance on the Holy Spirit. Um, our reliance on the Holy Spirit. Um, Chuck used to often quote um, in terms of his explanation for the way the Calvary chapels uh, grew and um, not just numerically, but 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 produced lots and lots of pastors and believers that were strong in the Word and all this kind of thing. And he always credited to the Holy Spirit. And he, he would quote Zechariah 4, 6, where he would say, not by, uh, not by uh, uh, power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And of course, that is drawn out of the place where Zerubbabel was going to be rebuilding the temple under the time of Haggai and Zechariah. And, and, um, and, uh, and just, you know, the work seemed too great and all of this, but, but, but he was encouraged then by Zechariah, who told him it was not by your own power, strength, or might, but rather by God's spirit. And so, we believe in the reliance of the Holy Spirit in terms of our daily lives, not just teaching about the Holy Spirit theoretically on Sunday mornings, but a daily reliance on the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the life of the believer, his indwelling, as we see in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, but also things like sanctification, being further drawn apart, separated from the world and being brought closer to God in terms of our uh, becoming more like Christ. This is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We see Paul speak of this in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, the illumination of Scripture. Uh, we study the Word of God, but we should never study the Word of God without inviting the Holy Spirit to help us understand. Uh, we do use tools and approaches to understanding the Word, breaking down the words and the language and understanding context and and uh, and all of these various things that that help us develop an understanding of the Word. But we don't want to do this in the flesh. We want the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said would guide us into all truth, to be involved in our Bible study and our personal devotional times, helping us to read the Word of God and for it to come alive to us. Um, the Holy Spirit is active in this. So for guidance is another one. Think about um, in Acts chapter 13, uh, the first few verses, where it speaks about how these uh, these men gathered together and sought the Lord and the Holy Spirit in that prayer meeting. Uh, ultimately, as they were worshiping the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And, uh, and so they were given a clear sense of something that God wanted to do through these two men. Or what about Paul himself in uh, Acts chapter um, 
<coughs> 16, where um, he wanted to go in this direction, but the Holy Spirit forbade him. He wanted to go in that direction, but the Spirit of Christ forbade him. And so then he gets a vision of this man in Macedonia and such. And so um, there is the, the, the expectation of the leading of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Um, there are those that believe that such things sort of passed off the scene in the first century, and we'll talk more about that in just a second. Uh, I don't believe that, though. I do believe the Holy Spirit is active, not just in terms of the indwelling, but also even in terms of the leading and guiding and answering prayer and such and, and giving direction. Uh, I do think that's important for us to to um, to embrace. Uh, we We shouldn't believe that the Holy Spirit is somehow less wanting to interact with us than he did with the first century believers. After all, Jesus spent a lot of time talking to the disciples before they went off into ministry. In that upper room, as he imparted to them, he spoke often about the Holy Spirit's activity in their lives. And we see that activity throughout the book of Acts. We see it uh, alluded to in various places throughout the New Testament. Uh, And that will lead me really to um, Um, what I'd like to spend a minute on here in this topic, and that has to do with where we stand as Calvary Chapels, as a movement, as a body of churches, uh, in regard to the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Are we a charismatic church or are we cessationists? Do we believe that the gifts passed off the scene in the first century? Uh, And we are are not cessationists. We do believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit do exist today, uh, including the sign gifts, uh, gifts like tongues and prophecy and such. We do believe that it's not just gifts of helps, administrations, or a word of knowledge or something, but we do believe even the signed gifts ultimately um, are still in operation today. But let me talk about that for a minute, because when you say that, invariably, and even within our own church, uh, there are a number of people who came out of churches that were very heavily into the charismatic gifts, and they got hurt, they got burned, they got disillusioned, and 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 the mere mention of the gifts of the Holy Spirit will oftentimes cause people to immediately bristle, black out, put up a wall, uh, this is not a safe space anymore kind of thing. Um, and that's, that's not the approach that Calvary Chapels take to uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, all of those abuses that generally are brought up, uh, and we mentioned some names on Sunday, people like... Uh, Benny Hinn or Rodney Howard Brown or any of those, uh, Kenneth Copeland, any of those that um, claim to be anointed of the Holy Spirit and doing these, exercising these sign gifts, healings and all these kinds of things. Uh, But they're frauds. They're, they're, they're shysters. They're, they're wicked. They're awful. You should avoid them at all costs. Um, And, and I I made mention of this and I want to make sure I, I didn't forget to mention this again. When you come upon those who bring a critique upon the abuses of charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, you will almost invariably find a Calvary Chapel pastor or Calvary Chapel pastors who are lending voice to that criticism, who are standing with those who oppose that kind of thing. Um, We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Sorry about that. Do you guys have dogs in your church? Uh, anyway, so uh, we uh, uh, we believe in the exercising of the gifts of the Holy Spirit according, strictly according to what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Uh, in Romans, uh, when we see these uh, gifts described, uh, especially in 1 Corinthians thir- uh, uh, 12, 13, 14, we see not only a listing of gifts, but we see the proper application, use, um, and accountability that is built into how these gifts are supposed to be approached. And so 
Um, when, uh, matter of fact, I'll use an example that happened in our church back in Illinois before we moved to Tennessee as an example. Um, in the course of, uh, in the course of our, uh, experience there, and I was not even, uh, in ministry yet. I was just attending the church. This is, yeah, I was a young believer at the time. And in the middle of a worship service, somebody, st- a lady stood up and began to prophesy, quote unquote, and claimed to be hearing from the Lord. And she shared this whole thing and she was shaking and all this. And the content of what she had to say was questionable to begin with. But the fact that it happened right in the middle of the, uh, the service was something that some people saw as really exciting because it seemed like God was, um, was, uh, was moving and all this kind of thing. And we didn't want to quench the spirit. Others were a little tentative about this and, uh, and we're not really too sure about the idea of this happening that way. Uh, and so we had ended up having a church meeting about it where our pastor, Pastor Phil, spent some time really considering this. Uh, Phil, who himself is open to the Holy Spirit's uh, gifts in that and, and, and that kind of thing. But this really struck him as being uh, not from the Lord because it interrupted the service. Uh, it was something that drew attention away from the Lord in that time and, and ultimately kind of drew attention to her and this kind of thing. And so uh, he said, you know, we do believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit being active for today. We do believe that they are perpetuous. They, they are existing today. But we don't believe this was an example of that. We think this was actually something that we would we would stand up in in, in the name of Scripture and based on Scripture, uh, judge and say this was this would be judged as not being a as being a proper exercising of the gift. And so uh, it turned out we ended up having a church split over it. Um, I mean, no hard feelings necessarily, but another but but some among the church that really felt like this was of the Lord and maybe we're quenching the spirit. They went off and started another fellowship and. Uh, uh, and that kind of thing, but um, but I, especially in retrospect, having thought about it from time to time, would would, would agree with how that was handled. Uh, we don't believe the Holy Spirit interrupts the Holy Spirit, and so when worship is happening or the Word is being taught, and someone stands up and interrupts that, that's not something we see as a legitimate expression of the gift. But I say all that to say this: Paul, in uh, again in that passage in First Corinthians, not only describes the uh, expression of the gift, but also speaks of the accountability that comes upon those who would express the gift. Uh, it says prophecy is subject to the prophets. Let two or three speak, let the others judge. So if you're going to claim to have a word from God, you really need to make sure that you're not just being in the flesh and just saying something because you thought it. In other words, just because you thought it doesn't mean it's from God. Uh, so if you, in fact, are, are believing you're being prodded by the Holy Spirit to give a word or something in a church service, understand or in any context where believers are gathered and this is important it's not just in church where a pastor's around but in any setting where believers are there and somebody claims to have a word from the lord the others are to judge that and determine whether or not it is a word from the lord now how do we do that well we do that by taking what is said and considering what the word of god has to say in other words if that prophecy or that word um, is uh, something that goes against what scripture says then we know that's not from the Lord. And the example we gave on Sunday was, what if uh, somebody got a prophecy saying that they should go into, um, go into uh, that a believer should go into business with an unbeliever? Now, if you do, I don't know your circumstances, whatever, but if, if the claim is made that God is telling somebody to go into work with an unbeliever, well, I would say that's a little questionable because Paul says in Scripture that you were not to be unequally yoked. And that's not just for dating necessarily. And so we should be cautious about entering into 
covenants and agreements and and such necessarily with unbelievers. Now, we all work for people and that kind of thing. And I would imagine what is ultimately in view here is the idea of going into business together and combining resources with unbelievers in that. It's not wise to do so. And the Word of God seems to speak against that. Of course, it does have application in things like dating too. Um, what about things like tongues? Um, what if somebody speaks in a tongue? Is that legitimate today? I think there is legitimate expression of that today. Certainly, there are many counterfeits. But there is legitimate expression of that today. There are those that have the gift of tongues. I don't have that gift, by the way. And so I'm, I'm not trying to defend something that, um, that I have because I'm afraid people will, you know, criticize me for having it. I don't have that gift. Uh, and so, um, but if somebody does express a gift of tongues, again, Paul speaks to how that's to be handled. Uh, if someone speaks in a tongue, there needs to therefore be an interpretation. If there's not interpretation, then that one is to stop speaking. If there is an interpretation, then not only is it edifying for the one who spoke it, but even those who hear now ultimately are edified too, because God has done something miraculous in their midst. Uh, and so, uh, but again, the idea of tongues as being uh, as a gift that is expressed, there are parameters for it. So when we talk about the charismatic gifts. There is no scriptural reason to believe that they fell off the scene. There are lots of abuses, and many people feel like because there are so many abuses, uh, excuse me, it is better to just not deal with those things. But there's no scriptural basis uh, to say that the gifts passed off the scene in the first century. Generally, what is pointed to in that is in uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, where there's reference to when that which is perfect has come, then when that is uh, not that, that is uh, then then um, that which is imperfect is done incomplete or imperfect is done away with, um, and that is generally thought to be referring to the canon of scripture. Canon of scriptures closes no longer need for the gifts. Um, I would disagree with that. First off, there's nothing in that passage that would lead you to believe Paul was talking about the the canon of scripture, um, and so to to apply it to that is is eisegeting. It's reading into the text something that's not there, but but that's a whole other discussion. Calvary Chapels as a movement do believe in the existence and the continued existence of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. However, as Paul says, these things are to be practiced or to be done decently and in order. And so therefore, we should not see abuses of this in our churches. And when there are, they should be confronted immediately because those gifts, though valid, need to be practiced in a valid way. And so having said all that, a matter of fact, um, I mentioned earlier that the Vineyard uh, churches grew out of Calvary chapels. John Wimber was a Calvary chapel pastor, and he and a number of others, Tom Stipe and some others, really wanted to go after that experiential uh, moving of the Holy Spirit in their services. They wanted to be open to those things in the midst of the gathering of the saints. Well, it's no secret all the abuses that began to take place, not just in vineyards, but also in other um arenas or settings, things like the Toronto Blessing and, and or the Brownsville Revival or all these kinds of things. Um, and so we don't, um, we don't believe uh, that that's right and proper. As a matter of fact, it is significant to mention that there are a number of those pastors that went off in the vineyard that did come back to Calvary chapels when they began to experience some of those abuses. And so uh, guys like Tom Stipe uh, made a big thing of, of the mistake that he had made going after those things and came back to Calvary chapels because of that. And so um, all right, so that is in regard to the reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Again, something that all believers, um, we should do. We should be relying on him. Again, the Holy Spirit is not the X factor of the Trinity. He's not crazy. He doesn't make us do crazy things. Jesus said, when I go, it is to your benefit that I go, because if I go, I will send the helper, the one who comes alongside. He will be like me. 
right? Another helper, the idea that he will be much like Christ, although distinct from Jesus, he'll be like Jesus. And so if we don't expect Jesus to be some crazy person, we should not expect the Holy Spirit to be crazy either. So let me move on here just for the sake of time and get through the last few. Uh, Next, I want to talk about something that seems like an obvious thing, but I do want to just speak to it. And that's the idea of love and grace. Uh, We believe that love, that agape or phileo even, as John sometimes interchangeably uses those terms in his writing, the idea of a selfless, other-centered, certainly brotherly, uh, but a genuine fellowship kind of love for people, something that is sacrificial and other-centered, again, willing to give uh, of ourselves for the benefit of others, even if it comes at cost to ourselves. Again, Jesus, of course, being the primary example of this. Uh, love is described in First thir- uh, Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, uh, a passage which, by the way, is often finds its home most often in wedding ceremonies, but actually was not written in the context of a wed- uh, wedding. It was written instead in the context of a believer's life. This is what love looks like as a verb lived out. And so we believe in love, that other-centered love, and we believe in grace. Love is something that Jesus said would uh, indicate to the world outside that we were his. It was the great indicator that we were his disciples, our love for one another. And so when believers don't love one another, but they bicker and fight and all this kind of thing, that is not helping the world see that we're his. Love is the supreme expression of the work of God in believers. Matter of fact, the fruit of the Spirit, as mentioned by Paul in Galatians, starts with the word love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he goes on to describe what love looks like in the rest of that passage. And so love is central and connected with that, therefore, is the idea of grace. Now, not just grace theologically, grace in terms of our understanding that we're saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We understand grace in that sense, the idea of the salvific element of grace that sets us apart, saves us, covers our sin, uh, and all of this. We That's foundationally important. But we also believe in grace in terms of being gracious to others. We believe in the idea of extending grace, of approaching people with grace, of giving grace uh, when people do wrong in that. Not that we condone sin or, or anything like that, but we extend grace like Jesus extended grace. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly and this kind of thing. Uh, and I shared a story on Sunday, I'll share it here too, that uh, there was a uh, a couple, um, hey, would you mind closing that real quick? Yeah. Thanks. Um, so, thank you. Uh so there was a couple that started coming to our church early on. Uh, we were in the very first meeting location that we that we had started meeting in. And uh, they came out to church. And um, uh, a guy and girl who uh, she had grown up in the church and may have been a believer at the time, uh, he had grown up a Mormon. And kind of at that point, I don't know, was really anything per se. And so, but they had tried going to a number of churches, but they kept getting kicked out because they were living together and they weren't married. And so that's obviously a serious thing. And so uh, as soon as it gotten was known in the churches, as I'm remembering them relating the story to me, anytime uh, they were at the church and it came out that they were living together, leadership would immediately tell them they couldn't come there anymore. And that's how they related the story to us. And so um, I was a little surprised to hear them just speak so openly about their living arrangements and that they weren't married. Uh, especially because she claimed to be a believer, and uh, and I don't recall he was really making claims about himself that way, but um, but in any case, that was where they were at. 
Now, my immediate thought to that is like, well, you can't do that, you know? And we talked about that a bit. We talked about where they were at. Are they thinking about marriage? Are they, you know, where are you at with the Lord and all this kind of thing? But, um, but I found myself in a bit of a tough spot. How do I deal with this? Uh, including the, the knowledge that I now had of how they had been, how that had been responded to in other churches. And on the one hand, I, I don't fault other churches for immediately dealing with that right as soon as the leadership found out about it. In our case, they'd been coming for a couple of weeks when I found out about this. And, uh, and so I didn't, I didn't make a pronouncement on that or, or deal with that in the, right there in the moment. But instead, I, I, I took it home and I began to pray about it and just to think it through a little bit. And, and by the way, I'll mention, you may not agree with my approach to this. You may not agree with how I handled this. But I'm telling you how I handled it because in, in my view, in retrospect, and in terms of how it all ultimately turned out, it seemed to be the right thing to do. Um, and I, I'm not saying I would do this in every instance, in every case, in every scenario. Uh, but in this particular one, I, I did take some time to think about it. And uh, and just best I could, I brought it to the Lord and, and sought scripture and, and thought through, you know, a couple of very important elements. One was, you can't have sin in the camp. We know this from Joshua, right? The idea that sin in the camp brought defeat. Uh, the, the, the body there suffered and, and as, a, as a result of not dealing with uh, of that sin existing in the camp. Uh, we know that mistakes, uh, consequences come upon us when we don't deal with that kind of thing. But there was also the other side of it. And I thought, well, how are they, how are they going to change if, they, if they're not sitting under the teaching of the Word of God? And so I didn't leave it open-ended forever, but I did decide to give it just a little bit of time um, to let them sit under the teaching, to be in fellowship, and to address this, you know, again, but to give them time to hear the Word of God. Um, and so as it turned out, they did end up getting married. Uh, he ended up getting saved. Um, they are still married today and are a beautiful Christian couple that are serving the Lord and 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 such. And uh, and I, as a matter of fact, uh, her parents uh, made it a point to, to talk to me sometime later and said how much they appreciated that we didn't kick them out right away because it gave them time to grow and to sit in a church fellowship and to see what they're missing if they weren't able to be here. And so, um, so we had a, a happy ending to that one, one that turned out to the glory of God. Again, I'm not saying I would do that in every circumstance all the time because the circumstances might be different or, or might just, the Lord might really put it on my heart to deal with it differently at that point. But that's how we dealt with that one. And we saw that as, um, that turned out okay. And so we're praising the Lord for that. But it could have turned out very badly. Uh, it could have turned out in a split in the church. It could have turned out to really turn other people off in that. We just didn't know. But for the sake of being gracious for a time, again, we don't want to abide sin in the camp indefinitely. Um, but for that period of time, we extended grace and we saw, we saw a good end to that. And so, but that's what that's kind of an extreme version in at least to some level on on extending grace but we ought to be extending grace to one another as believers we should recognize uh what Jesus did to pay for our sin and recognize that sin when it exists in someone's life but to recognize that we don't really have uh a uh, the right to pound on them for that we should confront it we should deal with it but we should do so in grace if they won't change, if, if sin is going to abide in the camp, then we do ask them to leave. Um, but we should first approach with grace and see if God doesn't have space to work in that. So again, love and grace. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, 
positionally in our standing with Christ because of it, the theological, soteriological, salvific element of that, but also the day-to-day extending of grace to one another. And, and that, again, stands in, in opposition to a legalistic standpoint when it comes to grace, to not approaching people with, uh, you know, like a, like a, uh, Le Maire, you know, from, uh, um, from uh, uh, you know, the Victor Hugo, uh, Les Mis and that kind of thing, where it's all about the law and this kind of thing. But uh, learning instead grace. And um, and ultimately, when we have to exercise church uh, discipline, we do that, but we do so with grace. So anyway, um, let me talk about a couple more things here. Eschatology, that's a big one. That's uh, uh, the Calvary Chapel movement uh, has espoused a premillennial, pre-tribulational view of eschatology or last things. In other words, we believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ and that he will return prior to that thousand years in order to establish it. Uh, we don't believe that he will come after the millennium. We don't believe that he'll uh, that the millennium is happening right now, like the uh, uh, like the amillennial camp would hold that we're sort of in that period of time between the resurrection of Christ and or the first advent of Christ and well, yeah, anyway, the, the first coming and second coming of Christ. Uh, we we believe in his coming before a literal thousand year millennial kingdom in which he establishes the kingdom promised to Israel and such, uh, and he comes before that. We also believe that he will come prior to the 70th week of Daniel or prior to that seven, uh, that uh, tribulation period. There are various views on this when he comes. Is it, is it pre-tribulational? Is it mid-tribulation? Is it pre-wrath? Is it post-tribulation? Uh, and that kind of thing. We, we believe that, um, that, uh, and I say post-millennial before, uh, obviously not, but it's, but, um, the idea of, um, him coming, uh, for his church and then to establish his kingdom these are two things that are important to understand. One is the establishing of his kingdom in the millennium, and we believe he comes to establish that. We also believe that he comes for his church to rapture us away prior to the tribulation period. Uh, he comes twice, in other words, as Paul talks about in uh, in First uh, Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and of course the second coming, which everybody sort of understands and expects. There's a coming even prior to that, which we call the rapture. We believe it happens prior to the 70th week of Daniel. So again, a pre-tribulational and of course then a premillennial uh, eschatology. And so therefore in our preaching and our teaching, we have a view that Jesus could come at any moment for his church, the bridegroom coming for his bride, much in line with the, uh, the idea of the Jewish wedding, uh, where the bride was always ready. She was preparing herself, knowing that at any moment he might show up and you'd hear the fanfare and the trumpets and he would come to town with his entourage and take her home and they would be married. And so we believe very similarly to that model that Jesus, the bridegroom, will come for the bride, the church, and take her home prior to that period of time where God is unleashing his wrath upon the earth. Which is to say, to be even more specific, that that means that by Revelation chapter 6, if not by chapter 4, certainly by chapter 6, we are clearly now moved into a time that is that is where God is bringing his wrath out on the earth. Uh, I, I would hold the view that the first seal opens the tribulation period. And of course, that is a point of contention on varying views of when the rapture happens. But Calvary Chapels, uh, as a movement, and I, I can't speak for every single pastor within the movement, but I hold that view, and so I fit very nicely into this um, body of churches, and that is the predominant view uh, within the movement. Uh, last thing I'll talk about is one that is decidedly less exciting, but worthy of mention for those who would wonder about it, and that is how do we govern ourselves as a body of churches? How does a Calvary Chapel function in terms of its government? Now, there are a number of 
um, styles of church government spoken of, or that are at least drawn from, if not clearly spoken of. And I say, I, I kind of question how clearly these are spoken of in, in, in the scripture. The ideas are all there, but in terms of which is the right one is a little bit unclear. Uh, because the language seems to allow for a number of different possible perspectives on how a church is to be governed. Uh, I will say at the outset, though, there is one form of church government that I will outright dismiss as being unbiblical, and that would be the idea of a congregational form of government in a church. The idea that the body of believers in the church all vote on all the issues of the church. Uh, And the reason I put that out immediately uh, uh, is because not everyone sitting in the pews is necessarily a believer. And so why would you have unbelievers involved in the decision-making of the church? That makes no sense. And so I would say any congregationally-led church runs up against that problem uh, where you've got people that are not spirit-filled, not believers, uh, not even necessarily, well, not believers, they're not believers in Christ, helping to make decisions that in regard to those who are, and that, that that's, to me just makes no sense. So, and I don't think the scriptures make any, any uh, real appeal to that kind of view. However, there are other views that, that the scriptures do uh, seem to indicate are valid. And one would be what's called a Presbyterian style of worship or an elder led uh, group of um, uh, leadership within the church. And that basically means, and uh, the word presbyter speaks of an elder, which can be used in a sense of a council or a group of people, but simply means an older person, an older man in terms of leadership within the church. And so uh, an elder-led church or a Presbyterian style of government means that there is a a group of elders who are all of equal footing. Some may have different responsibilities in, uh, uh, what is it, um, is it... Uh, First Timothy or Titus, where it speaks about the idea of elders and, and then sort of puts a different group within there, those who teach among the elders. There are some who teach uh, really the congregation. All elders need to be able to teach, but some are maybe given the responsibility of teaching uh, the congregation uh, as a whole. And so, um, but that would speak of a group of guys that make uh, all the decisions um, I mean, they, of course, listen to what the church has to say and all this kind of thing, but they're ultimately the ones who share the responsibility of decision-making. And that is an elder-led or a Presbyterian style of government. Uh, the term elder or presbyter or presbyteros in the Greek, again, is one term that is used to describe that elder-led uh, idea. Uh, the other term, which is uh, generally uh, episkopos, which is generally translated either bishop or overseer, um, is a term that is used interchangeably with elder in a couple of different instances. For example, in Acts chapter 20, and also in, um, like in, um, uh, um, in Titus, uh, there's mention of these two different terms, speaking of the same group of people. And uh, yeah, I'll catch up with you in a minute, though. Oh, yeah. Um, sorry about that. Here at Church in the House, we have a little bit of a disruption here for just a second. But uh, here you go. You could fill it up. Thanks. Okay. So um, this is what house church could look like, by the way, one day if we end up going back to that. So, but anyway, so the terms presbyteros uh, and episkopos are often interchanged or they speak of the same group of people. Uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 20, there's the bringing together of the elders, but then later on they are spoken of as episkopos, overseers and bishops and such. And so, uh, but speaking of the same group of people, there's also another term for pastor, poemus, uh, or uh, poemen, that speaks of the idea of um, a pastor, a shepherd, somebody who tends sheep and that kind of thing. And it's applied 
to um, the Lord himself as our great shepherd, our good shepherd. And then, of course, it's also applied to those who are in charge of flocks of you know, his, his, his sheep in the congregational sense. So um, the Calvary chapels don't espouse a Presbyterian form of government either. Um, now, there are pros and cons to a Presbyterian uh, form of government. Um, it can be that there is just a benefit would be the tremendous agreement that must exist between elders in order for decisions to be made. However, uh, because all of the pastors are on the same level, there can be agreements or disagreements uh, on that uh, on that board level, that that elder board level, uh, that may uh, create problems in terms of teaching content or uh, whether the pastor is allowed to decide what to teach or uh, those kinds of things. Uh, and so the the pastor becomes much more limited in that capacity than I think he would need to be. I think there ought to be freedom of a pastor to lead the church and to lead the sheep. However, and this will lead me to the third uh, uh, form of government that I'll mention here, uh, and this is the one that Calvary chapels tend uh, uh, would espouse. This is what has typically been referred to as the Moses model, the idea that Moses, as he led the people of Israel, uh, with the help of many other judges who were ultimately or people that helped him deal with the issues uh, within the, the, the body of the Israelites, uh, Jethro's um, uh, advice, uh, would lead the people and help settle disputes and all that kind of thing. But really, the leadership and responsibility fell on Moses' shoulders. And it was Moses' job to uh, spend time with the Lord and to make sure that he was being led by the Lord, and then he would lead the people of Israel. And this is much more akin to how the Calvary Chapel movement approaches church leadership. Now, I I do say, though, that even though we're not a Presbyterian-led body of churches, we do believe in the value and the importance of having that kind of counsel and co-laborers alongside to help the church run. And so I'll take just a minute here to quickly interject our, uh, a couple of things here that, um, that we have done in our church, and this is common within Calvary chapels as well. Uh, I can't speak for every Calvary chapel, obviously, because I don't know everybody, but, but as a movement, this is a very common thing. In our church, we have the senior pastor. That's my role. We also have assisting pastors who share teaching responsibilities. When I'm not there, they fill in and they do the teaching, um, and uh, they also help make decisions regarding the spiritual condition and direction of the church. These are guys that I look to for continued advice in, in regard to those things. And then we also have what's called an advisory board. We used to call it an elder board, but we changed it to advisory because of the confusion that can sometimes be created about whether or not this group of guys are pastors or not. And they're not. They're lay leaders. But they do help us get in, uh, when it comes to getting involved in financial decisions and, and other things like that. And these are men that I look up to. These are men I respect. And most importantly, they are men that can speak truth to me. And, uh, and, and I'll go a step further here in just a second. But that is how we are organized as leaders. We have, uh, again, myself as a senior pastor. We have assisting pastors. And we also have a, uh, an advisory board that gets involved in, in many of the decision-making uh, things, mostly business decisions or financial decisions in regard to the church. We also have a constitution and bylaws. Uh, that all of the uh, leaders uh, on the board have signed uh, and the pastors. Uh, they've all signed. They've read it. Uh, we sat down, hammered out some things to make sure everybody was in agreement on it. Uh, and then we ended up all putting our signatures on it. And within this document is uh, all of the information about how we run as a church, including a very strong element of accountability 
for the senior pastor, whether it's me or if I get kicked out one day, uh, someone else who's end- ending up leading it. Uh, the senior pastor has a strong measure of accountability upon him. It doesn't extend to the idea of telling me what I can teach in regard to which book of the Bible or, or, or approach to systematic, or if I want to do a topical series or something, there's no mention of that kind of thing. However, if I do begin to do something that is um, unbecoming of a pastor, or if I adopted a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel mindset, uh, or something like that, where I just really got off the rails, the pastors would bring that to my attention. And uh, again, this is according to our bylaws. We, the leadership would come to me and approach me on that and confront me on that. If I didn't listen to them and continue down this path, um, the other Calvary pastors in the area would come together and form a council that would hear the the um, you know what what the uh, board and, and the pastors had to say about it, and that group of pastors would then weigh in on would approach me and confront me on it as well. Now, if I still wasn't listening at this point, and if for some reason everybody in the church hadn't left already, which they should, um, at that point there is a regional pastor. Uh, that this would be brought to. And at that stage, uh, they could take away the name Calvary Chapel. I would essentially be, um, you know, um, put out and that kind of thing. Because at, by that point, I've rejected the counsel of all these different people, and I'm just set in my ways and that kind of thing. Well, there's again, there's accountability built into that. On that note, too, the church itself is its own form of accountability because uh, we don't have a membership like a lot of traditional denominations do. We have a directory, and we can figure out how to call people and stuff, but we don't have a membership per se. Uh, we don't have a, a membership thing that uh, includes with it, you know, promises of tithing a certain amount or any of those kinds of things. But instead, we have an agreement that is purely based on our relationship. I am your pastor as long as you'll keep on coming and listening to me teach. If at any point you decide you don't think I'm teaching well anymore, you can leave and no one's going to come and and ask you where your giving has gone and all that kind of thing. It's no, instead, I mean, I probably would call and ask why you left, but if you didn't tell me, but, uh, but there's no requirement for you to be there in that church. If you don't believe that it's a healthy church, uh, nobody in the church is required to be there. And so, um, there's a certain amount of freedom in that. If you don't agree, if you think I'm not teaching soundly, you can respond to that personally. And there's no there's nothing binding you to this church other than the fact that you uh, that you want to be in fellowship here and that you're being fed and that kind of thing. So, so that being said, um, that is a little bit about our own church, but really in the in the broader context of Calvary Chapels as a movement, and this is basically what you will expect at any Calvary Chapel that you attend. And so, uh, hopefully, that answers some questions. I guess I'll finish by answering a couple of questions that were raised uh, here in the service. Um, the first one had to do with what is Calvary Chapel as a movement? What is our position on Israel? And uh, I have no problem saying right at the outset, we are very pro-Israel. We believe they are and remain and will always be God's chosen people. We believe the millennial kingdom is a promise first to them that we will, uh, by grace and having been grafted into the vine, will participate in when it happens. But it is first and foremost the fulfillment of promises that were made to God's chosen people as chosen through Abraham and, and the posterity that came from him. Uh, we do believe that they are his special people. And again, the church is as well, but as a separate entity from Israel in terms of eschatological things and in terms of the promises given to Israel. 
Uh, We don't believe in replacement theology. We don't believe the church has replaced Israel, but has come alongside and been grafted into the vine. But there is still a distinction. And we know this both from all the promises in the Old Testament, but we also know it from places like Romans 9 through 11 and, and, and our understanding of the book of Revelation and these kinds of things. Lots can be said on that, and lots has been said on that in various teachings in the past, but we are very pro-Israel. doesn't mean we agree with everything they ever do. doesn't mean we think they're perfect or that they've never done anything that they shouldn't have done. And we don't, we don't condone their wrong actions when they are wrong actions. But we believe that the promises that God made to Israel are unilateral, Genesis 15, uh, 12, 15, and 17, really. But the unilateral element of it is very well expressed in Genesis 15. Um, um, matter of fact, also, uh, man, I was just reading today, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, here in Jeremiah. Um, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 36 and 37, where... Uh, where God reiterates, like if, if, you know, if my promises, if my, uh, how does he put it? He says, if, if, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, uh, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. In other words, it's impossible. I'm not going to cast them off. So we're very pro-Israel, and uh, that is a typical thing throughout Calvary Chapels as a movement. And Chuck himself was very, very uh, pro-Israel. As a matter of fact, if you if you have been in Israel and you've gone to the Jordan River and were baptized, and you got onto that big structure out there on the Jordan to be baptized— Chuck built that. He actually paid for that to be built. And uh, uh, I didn't realize this, but there's actually a plaque right there in honor of Chuck and his love for Israel and his love for the Jewish people. Uh, a matter of fact, I think I mentioned this Sunday too. Uh, one of the ladies in church actually mentioned that plaque and, and reminded us about the baptismal area. And uh, I think I recall as well that Chuck offered to finance uh, some of the rebuilding of the third temple when it comes, you know, like the paying for the cornerstone to be carved or something like that. But uh, very, very pro-Israel. Um, the second question that came up uh, was in regard, uh, two questions actually came up in regard to tongues. Uh, one of them was, um, what is tongues? And tongues, to ex- explain the gift of tongues, is the ability of a person to speak in a language that they had no prior knowledge of. Um, and the idea that somebody could uh, and the example we gave was if uh, if I asked you if you were speaking in tongues, if you were speaking in Spanish, my first question would be to a- is would be to ask you if you took Spanish in high school, because if you did, then you're not really speaking in tongues. You're just using what you learned in class. But if you started speaking in some ancient dialect of some language that you've never learned, then that might be a, a fair expression of the gift of tongues. I say might because Paul also speaks of the idea of an interpretation being necessary. Now, how do we know the interpretation is valid? Well, there is a gift of interpretation that is mentioned there in uh, 1 Corinthians. But I would suggest, too, that if, uh, if, if in a situation where that language was spoken uh, and somebody knew that language and could verify what was being said, that could be an expression of, of uh, uh, help to verify a valid expression of the gift of tongues. Um, the other question revolving, and again, you want to go to First uh, Corinthians uh, 12, 13, 14 to really get a full idea. I, I keep mentioning chapter 13. Some of you might be scratching your heads and saying, well, that's the love chapter. He doesn't talk about the gifts really there so much. Well, not as much as he does in 12 and 14, but chapter 13 
is the love chapter well-placed in the discussion about the gifts because the gifts are meant to be used for edification, for building up. They're not meant to draw attention to yourself. They're not meant to tear down. They're meant to ultimately be used in love for the edification of the body. Now that leads to the other question about tongues that came up on Sunday uh, as well. And this had to do with the idea of the gift of tongues being seen as necessary, as a necessary evidence of the indwelling of the, uh, of, of the, of the gifting of the Holy Spirit, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me start by saying that we believe that the scriptures teach that there is, of course, the idea of being baptized into the body of Christ. That doesn't even speak of water in that sense per se, but just the idea of identification in the body of Christ. However, water baptism is something that Jesus told followers to do, his followers to do. Uh, It was practiced in the New Testament. It was practiced throughout church history. Paul makes reference to it. We know that ultimately the idea of uh, Philip baptizes the Ethiopian on uh, on the road. We understand that baptism is something that is done in obedience to Christ as, uh, as, as an outward expression of the inward change that came when you were brought into the body of Christ or baptized into the body. In other words, you're not saved when you're baptized, but you get baptized because you're saved, because you're a child of God or you're a follower of Christ. Now, we do believe that there is yet a subsequent uh, uh, potential thing that can happen as well, and that would be what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, Now, this is something that is a separate event where after someone is a believer, it is possible that the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody and gift them and even call them and empower them to service um, or to be a blessing in a particular environment. Again, uh, the use of the gift of tongues or something like this, um, or any of the gifts that are mentioned there. in the New Testament. And so, but we believe that is a separate event. It could happen the moment you enter into the body of Christ by faith, uh, you receive God's grace and you're saved. You might be baptized in the Spirit at that moment. Uh, it could be that at your water baptism, you happen to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, it could be at some time completely unrelated to those two, completely unconnected to those two things in terms of time that the, you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It might be at, a, uh, at a, a time when you're gathered together with brothers and sisters in prayer or something, and you ask for it, and the Holy Spirit baptizes you in that. Again, the Holy Spirit's not some X factor of the Trinity, just doing crazy things. You cannot judge what the Bible says about the, about the gifts of the Holy Spirit by the abuses by crazy people that are questionably not even saved. But instead, we want to make sure we look at what the Scriptures have to say about that. So the question that arose about that is, is the gift of tongues the sign gift to verify that you have been either baptized or possibly even filled with the Holy Spirit as a believer? Does he indwell you? Because if he does, you should speak in tongues is the view of some. Uh, we don't hold that view. And I think it's very clear biblically that nobody should hold that view. Uh, Paul, in again, 1 Corinthians, talking about these very things, um, asks a series of rhetorical questions. He says, do all prophesy? Do all speak in tongues? Do all have gifts of this and this and this? The answer is obviously intended to be understood to be no. The idea is that no, not everybody has all of these gifts or any one of these gifts particularly. And so therefore to say that the gift of tongues is the sign gift uh, is a, is a, uh, you know, is, uh, is misguided. Matter of fact, Paul himself, if it were the sign gift, Paul really plays it down because he said, I'd rather speak 10,000 words in my understanding than, you know, uh, than, than in tongues or for exactly how I put that. But the idea is much better to speak in a language that can be understood and edify people than to speak in a tongue where maybe I'm edified, but nobody else is. 
And so, um, you know, clearly it's, 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 uh, that's been built up to be something that Paul, the Holy Spirit, and of course the Holy Spirit behind that never intended to be. And so, no, we don't believe that at all. Again, when it comes to those things, we believe that those things would be practiced decently in order. And of course, under the auspices of what the scriptures plainly teach. So that being said, uh, uh, I'll just end our time here together with, uh, again, with a closing thought that was, uh, that was, uh, you know, often shared by Pastor Chuck, and he said, really, the role and responsibility of of the church and of the pastor of the church is to make sure that the sheep that are there are the best loved and best fed sheep anywhere. And so that is the desire of all of us as Calvary pastors, is to make sure that our people that come to the church are fed in the word of God. They are loved both by the leadership and by the church as a whole. That This is a place where love and grace are experienced, where growth takes place, where fellowship happens, where we break bread together, we pray together, we get in the word together, and, uh, and, and all of these things. And so um, so that being said, hopefully this gave a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of a better understanding of what the movement of Calvary Chapels is all about. Um, some of these things, like eschatology um, uh, in particular, um, there are people in our fellowship that don't hold a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, but that's okay. I mean, people are still welcome to come and fellowship together, even though they may hold a different view on that kind of thing. Again, I think love and grace come to be. Uh, important in that category. Um, uh, I have very, very dear friends who hold a very, very different view of eschatology than I do, but we are close and have been for 30 years. And, and so there's no, uh, you know, there's no, no harm, no foul on that. You know, when it happens, we'll all find out, you know, find out, you know, which way this all played out. But, um, but, uh, but that being said, this is what you can expect when you go to a Calvary chapel to some degree or another, this is what it should look like and, and be like. So I hope that helped. And so father, thank you for Really, all of the churches in the world that exist that are validly, uh, uh, truly, genuinely, authentically Christ-centered and loving you and, and, uh, and are teaching their people and feeding them and giving them a place to call home, we thank you that these churches all exist. And we thank you that as Calvary Chapels, we exist as part of that larger universal body of Christ. Uh, we thank you that um, that you have called Calvary Chapels to exist in that. We thank you for the things that make us what we are. And we thank you that as we major on the majors and not on the minors, that we can have fellowship with people of all kinds of different stripes within the, the body of Christ. But we thank you that there is such a thing as being in the body of Christ. And we pray that as we spend time in the Word uh, particularly, that that would help us form our understanding of what it is that we believe and and how it is we should live out our faith and and all of the things that our faith are rooted in ultimately and most importantly in glorifying christ Uh, and so we just pray that lord in our fellowship that we would always do that that as we love one another it would be in genuine true fellowship all around the throne that we would help one another that we would love one another we would pour into one another that we would uh, be true brothers and sisters that one day we'll enter into eternity whether it be uh, through death or the rapture uh, we find ourselves one day standing before your throne with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping. So thank you, Lord, for the great hope that we have that is all rooted in the finished work of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you have any further questions or thoughts or anything, you can share them in the comments section below. and um, Or you can email me at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. And uh, again, I hope this has been of some benefit to you. And uh, if you have any questions about the church, hopefully we answered them. But if you have more, you're always welcome to interact. So thanks for watching and listening. And may the Lord bless and keep you and make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace forever. Amen.